Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited you came across this message. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit HopeChurchLV.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate and review our podcast to help spread Hope Church to the world. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Hope Church. Good morning. Good Good to see you guys all here. Happy almost New Year. Um, Yeah, some people are excited about that. I know we're in the weird in-between week between Christmas and New Year's where everyone's like the anticipation and excitement of Christmas is gone. Now we're just dreading failed New Year's resolutions right around the corner. So it's like the worst week of the entire year. Um, but hey, like the video introduced me as, uh, my name is Christian Gracia and I am a former pastor here at Hope. Um, we left January 2021 to go to Kansas City for about two and a half years for me to pursue my seminary degree as well as just discern what God wanted us to do with our life. And in that time, clarified a call to come back and plant a church here in Las Vegas. Moved back here about four months ago and so now I'm a church planting resident getting ready to uh, launch King City Church in the fall of 2024, about nine months away, which yeah. Yeah, seems like a long ways off to you. Doesn't seem like enough time to me. So we're, we're getting ready for it. And I'm honored to uh, be able to preach the word to you today at my home church where my, my Christian life really began for me following Jesus. Um, and so what I want to talk to you about today is the thing that I think has shaped me the most. The most impactful thing, lesson, concept, passage of scripture that has shaped me as a follower of Jesus. And I believe it can have an impact on your life today. As well. Um, and before we get there, though, I want to tell you a little bit about my story and journey of how I got here, because um, that's really where it came from. Now, you can do yourself a favor. You can flip to Philippians 3, 7, and 8. That's going to be our passage today. But we won't be talking about that for a hot minute, all right? So camp out there. Get comfortable. We're going to do some work to get ourselves to Philippians 3, 7, and 8, okay? So um, I am a, a true local Las Vegan. I was born and raised here in the Valley. Come on. Yeah, represent. Got to stick together. You know what, 25% of people who live in the valley were born here. Everyone else moved here at some point in time. So all day I've been picking on my wife and Scott Worthington because they moved here when they were seven years old. Don't know why seven. It's an age you move here to Las Vegas apparently. But they're not real locals, you know what I mean? So like I wear that with pride of like born and raised right here. Um, and I was raised in a, uh, a nominal Christian family, a pretty broken one, loved them to death, great people, but uh, we were nominal in our Christian faith, meaning this, it was much more in name than substance, all right? Just even my own self personally, you look at my life, there was really nothing different, nothing that stuck out, nothing that actually looked distinctly Christian about how we lived our life, other than we went to, Chris, we went to church two, two times a year, Christmas and Easter. Uh, my wife told me later on in life, as we, I got into this whole thing, that they call those people creasters. So... You might be one of those people. You might have came last week and you're like, I'm going to go two weeks in a row. Jazz for you to be here, by the way. Come on, keep coming. We want you here. Um, but that's what they're known as. You go two times a year. It's why we have more services around this time because we got a lot of people that come to church on Christmas and Easter. I'm outside of that. That's my only exposure to what church was like. Um, but I was put in private school for my, uh, most of my education. I went to Lake Mead Christian Academy on the east side of the valley. Go Eagles. Um, someone, hey, it is, got some people here. Um, and that was not church, but it did give me exposure to God, to Jesus, the gospel. And I'm thankful for that because it really did lay a foundation for what would eventually lead me 
to uh, walking with him fully. That took place in January 2013, halfway through my senior year of high school. I surrendered my life to Jesus. I went all in on him, and I was like, let's see if this thing pans out and it works. If not, I'll jump ship and find something else. Um, and 10 years later, we're still here, so we're happy about that. Uh, and in that time, I got out of high school, and I had just come to a place where I was praying for God to give me a family to belong to, um, a spiritual one, a community. I didn't know what it meant to be part of church. My family was kind of in a dispersed state at that time. I had lost most of my friends from high school trying to chase after this Jesus guy. And so I just started begging God, give me a place to go and give me people to be around because I needed them. And on September 10th of 2013, I received the greatest Facebook message of all time from none other than Scott Eugene Worthington, who invited me to a college-age Bible study in his living room that he was starting around that time. So I went to that small group, and I remember just, like, receiving the message and being like, God loves me. Like, he answered my prayer. Praise the Lord. And I went to that small group, and those people became like family to me. Um, I had met Scott only like once or tw three times or so in my life up to that point. He had spoken at uh, Lake Mead a couple times. And then the other significant part of it was he, him and Hannah actually sang at my homecoming dance for my junior year. So if you want to know what private school is like, they hire a student pastor to come and sing for you for a dance. <laughs> it's pretty rad if you ask me. But I got to start meeting with him, and then Hannah actually recognized her. She was one of the first people I connected with because she went to Lake Mead with me, um, which sounds more like cute than it is. Actually, it's way worse than that. We were two years apart. She's two years older than me, and we couldn't have been further on the spectrum of how we approached school. I was like a slacker, too cool for school. She was like, God made me for school spirit. And so <laughs> lived and breathed that. Her best years in life were in high school. My worst years in life we're in high school. Um, but we, like, became best friends for about a year before we started dating. Um, and in that time, it was, like, very platonic. Like, the way we referred to each other was little bro and big sis. Yeah, like, that was the extent of the romantic tension in our relationship, okay? And it's weird now because we have three kids together, but that's our story, so we're sticking to it. And those people just, like I said, they became like my family, man. They changed my life and the trajectory of my life long term. And as I got close up with them, with Hannah, with Scott, with Vance, with people at Hope Church, I began to see something I was not used to. I began to see this expression of Christianity that was compelling, that was beautiful, that was rich, that I knew I knew of Christians before, but I didn't have the relational equity to be so close to see the insides of their life. They weren't perfect. Life wasn't perfect for them. But the way they led their life, how they made their decisions, how they lived it was just beautiful to me. It was compelling. And I was like, man, I want this life for myself. And it created two burdens for me for two different groups of people. For one group, it was this group of nominal Christians, the people that I came from, those who, man, they don't really go to church. Their life is a lot more kind of just regular, not so Christian, but they say they're Christian. I think a majority of Christians in America today would fall in this category of nominal faith. I had a burden for them because I thought they're missing out on what Jesus came to give us, this abundant life that I'm witnessing now in these people. But then the other group of people that I felt a burden for were those who don't know the Lord, who were lost, who don't believe in Jesus, but all they know about Christianity is taken from the nominal faith crowd. So I'm looking at these two groups of people thinking, man, they're all missing in. If we don't fix it, they're going to continue to. So I had this, this heartache of, man, there's a gap. And I wanted to know, I started to search out the answer to the question, what is it that took someone from a nominal, even non-existing faith to a compelling and resilient one? What was the thing that made that happen? And I started to understand that more, the more I, I, I started to learn how people shape their lives. 
Think about it right now as you're sitting here in this room. There is something that is determining the way that you are leading your life, what you're building your life around, what's, what's helping drive decisions, what's determining your happiness, if it's a good day or a bad day. What is that thing? The way Jesus would teach us is in Matthew 6, 21, he would say, for your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus taught this thing. He thought that your treasure, the thing that you value above everything else, is where your heart is going to be found. Now, the word heart here is not just like your emotions or even your physical heart. When it was used in the first century, specifically in this language, it was the center of one's being. It was everything you are. So Jesus is teaching that whatever you are treasuring above everything else in your life, prioritizing, valuing, your entire center would be there. That's where they could find you. You're going to build your life around that thing. It's going to drive your decisions. It's determining your happiness and your joy or lack thereof. So it taught me that every single human being, not just Christians, but people were wired to treasure and pursue something. We're all doing it. Most likely something that we're hoping will satisfy us, make us happy, fulfill us. But there's an issue. The issue is we treasure and pursue the wrong things. Scripture tells us this in Jeremiah 2.13. The prophet speaking on behalf of God says this, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Let me tell you what I did before I came to know Jesus and what I still do today. I reject him for lesser things that can never satisfy. I wish I could stand up here with a spiritual cape on and tell you I am perfect. I've nailed this thing. I wake up every day feeling on fire for God, ready to get after it. I want to read my Bible every waking moment of my life. I wish I could say that to you. That's not true about me. And I have a feeling it's not true about you either. I have to fight every single day to turn away from things that promise something they can't deliver and turn to the one that really can. And I think, again, this is the human experience. I think this is what we do time and time again. In fact, science backs this up. The science of happiness is fascinating. It tells us this, proven, that the pursuit or the anticipation of something we really want is actually more gratifying than when we actually get it. You know it. You know that already, right? That the, the waiting and the anticipation and the excitement leading up to a goal or obtaining something, a relationship, a raise, a vacation, whatever it is, once we actually get it, we dip. And it tells us, science says, that the dopamine in our brain in that journey leading up to it continues to release more and more. So we get this emotional high, but then in the moment that we achieve it, it cuts it off and we go down baseline happiness. So the pursuit is actually more exciting than actually getting the thing we want. We've already seen this. Christmas just happened, right? Some of us in the room, we just got some awesome Christmas gifts. We've been waiting for them maybe all year, maybe just for a month, right? And already, December 26th rolled around. The shine has already worn off, hasn't it? Parents in the room, Santa's in the room, right? You just spent hundreds of dollars on gadgets and gizmos and gifts for your little kids. And already a few days later, they probably have uttered the table phrase, I'm bored. <laughs> and you're thinking, excuse me? Why is that? Because we continually look to things to fulfill and satisfy us. And as soon as we get them, we're left wanting. Here's where Jeremiah describes that entire journey, hewing out cisterns, carving out these jars that we're looking to that can hold water, that can fulfill and satisfy us. And every single time, 
We go through the whole process of making it, shaping them, carving them, and then we try to use them. We go to them for the satisfaction and they break. What do we do? We restart the whole process over. And so knowing this about myself, knowing this about people, the other question that came to my mind then, this is true about us, if we are wired to treasure and pursue things, but we pursue and treasure the wrong things, why do we do that when we know that there's the source of living water that can actually satisfy us? If we have the answer at our fingertips, why don't we just turn to that instead of other things? Why don't I wake up every day wanting to get into the Bible? Why do I drift away from God, not towards God? What is that that causes that? And what I believe the answer is are two primary weapons that the enemy uses against our life and our faith. And we see them, I believe, most clearly in the parable of the sower. Now, the parable of the sower, before we get to that, to explaining it, it's a famous passage used by Jesus to describe the growth of the kingdom of God or the church or how people come to, to faith in Jesus. The idea is, the story goes that he uses this metaphor of a sower, a farmer, who scatters seeds across four different soils. There's the path, there's the rocky ground, there's the thorns, and then there's the good soil. And as he goes about and does this, only one soil actually makes it and bears fruit. And look how Jesus describes this parable, how he explains it to us. He says, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. It's the gospel. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But they, these have no root. They believe it for a while and in times of testing or suffering fall away. As for those that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And then finally, for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. What does this tell us? There's four soils. One of them we can do nothing about. The outcome of what happens there, bird comes, eats up the seeds. The only thing we can do to combat that is we can continue to sow seeds. The other three, though, all look promising at first, right? You get two that are like they start off strong and then they don't make it. Only one does. Why is that? Because in this life, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you will experience two things the enemy will use against you, and that are that is pain and pleasure. Pain and pleasure. Regardless of where you stand right now today, you can't escape experiencing these two things. I think the human experience can be described as us avoiding pain and looking out or looking for pleasure. We want to be happy. We want to avoid unhappy things. Like every single day, I don't think you wake up this way. I don't think you're looking to like make yourself sad. You're looking to do things that make you happy. And so we're all have to deal with this. Let me prove it to you this way. I'm sure you know some people in your life who maybe went to church before. Maybe they're spiritually open to God. Maybe they even call themselves Christians. But today, they either would not say that or they've drifted so far away from God that they really don't care about going to church. They don't care about God. They don't care about Jesus. And I would wager with you today that the reason and cause for that probably finds its home in one of these two things. They went through some painful experience in their life. They couldn't reconcile that with who God was, who they thought he was, didn't trust me anymore. Or there was some lesser pleasure that came along that they decided to pursue over him. Pain or pleasure. Maybe you're here today. You're saying, man, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm at the edge. I'm at the, the crossroads right now. I'm going through some hard times. 
life hasn't treated me well, things have not panned out the way I wanted them to. Or maybe you're just tired of trying. You hear week in and week out that Jesus is the answer, that there's comfort and peace and joy, and you're just not feeling it. And there's other things you'd rather go chase after that you're pretty sure would immediately solve your issue of wanting to be satisfied and, ple- and, and happy. And instead, you're here trying to fight to maintain faithful to him. We all got to deal with it. Pain and pleasure. These are the things that get in the way of us in our pursuit of the Lord. So if that's the case, what do we do? What do you and I do to combat these two weapons? And that's where we finally arrive at one of my favorite passages in Scripture, Philippians 3, 7, and 8, where I believe we find the answer to that question. Look what Paul says here in Philippians 3. He says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, let's be honest. I think this passage is really easy to be inspired by. If you're a Christian in the room today, you're like, I like this passage. This makes me happy. I I wish this were true about me. Really inspirational, really hard to apply practically. But this passage, I am convinced, is the secret sauce to being a disciple of Jesus. Like as I look at people that I've observed up close, that I see this genuine faith, a compelling faith, a resilient one that I want for myself, man, they may not even think of this passage. They might not even use the verbiage of gain and loss, but I'm telling you, this right here is the essence of what it looks like to be this disciple of Jesus that's resilient and compelling. So what's actually happening here? Paul's writing to a church in Philippi. And he's just communicating a simple truth here. He's saying this, of all the good things in my life, none of them are worth getting in the way of my pursuit of Jesus. And so he goes on this whole thing of talking about loss and gain. For us today, if we apply it to to us, if you imagine right now two columns right here, one that would be the gain column, one would be the loss column, we would fill this with good things that we love and cherish. It could be our family members, our friends, our accomplishments, our hopes and dreams, our reputation, whatever that is, our, 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 our money, the things that we have gathered in this life, fill it up with this column, say, man, these are good things I would consider gain. Paul would say, you take all of that, And what you need to do is you move it to this column, which is loss, and leave only one thing in that column, which is truly gain, which is Jesus. Now, what does that mean to put it in loss? What it means when you consider something loss is not that you don't care about it, but that you're saying these things are ultimately not my treasure. Ultimately, I'm not building my life around them. Ultimately, they're not driving my decisions, not as much as he is. And so we have to move things from gain to loss. How does Paul do that? Well, as you look in the passage here, he uses two different words. He says counted and count here. He's counted as loss and he counts it as loss. In the Greek language, the original language is written in, those two words are really important. The word counted is a perfect tense verb, meaning it was an action completed in the past. It's as if Paul is writing to the church of Philippi and he's saying, everything up until this point in my life, things I've done, that I've gathered, achieved, whatever good things I have, I'm considering it as loss. It's done, bam. But then he says that he counts it as loss, which is an active tense verb, meaning it's something that's not just done once, but it's reoccurring. It's as if he's saying, I will consider and I still do count everything as loss going forward. Which means this for you and I. 
This is not just a one-time thing. It's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. It's a daily decision that we have to make, which is why I think this is the key, because you can't do this passively. You can't complacently consider everything in your life as lost every single day. You have to be intentional about it, passionate about it. And that's what Paul is doing. Now you might be wondering, I get this, great passage. How does this actually help us with pain and pleasure though? Well, Paul uses a phrase here. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. I find that statement really interesting. Because when you study the life of Paul, he didn't lose everything. He went through some stuff. You could read it in the scriptures. He went through some difficult, painful things. He got shipwrecked a few times. He got lashed a few times. He lost loved ones. He went through hunger and sleepless nights. Like he didn't have a perfect, easy, gentle life. But he didn't lose everything. So what is he saying here? Maybe think of a time uh, from this past summer. Like I told you in the beginning, we moved to Kansas City for about two and a half years. Um, and we were there for a time. And then we decided as God uh, clarified to call the plant church to move back. And so we we're getting ready to do, make that move. We moved here the end of July this year. And in our uh, almost eight years of marriage now will be eight years, four months in April. Go marriage, right? Yeah. She was here the other two services, so it's not as fun when she's not here. But just imagine her there smiling and blushing. In our eight, almost eight years, we've moved six times. We, right? It's miserable. We hate it. We don't like it. But it's, we just had to several times. Now, when you move in city, you can get by with like using like trucks and stuff and moving like everything you have to a different location. When you get to like crossing state lines, you get down to like the nitty gritty of like, is this absolutely necessary? Do we need this table? Do we like this lamp? Do we need this kid? Like there's things that you just go through. <laughs> And you're just like, whatever we need to get there, just like toss everything. Let's just go. We just got to get there. So we're getting ready to do that, right? It's the summer of this year, moving back from Kansas City, Las Vegas, 1,400 miles. And so we're like downsizing, essentially. And one day in particular, we put all these things in these seven large black trash bags. And we're sending them out on the curb, probably because it's like bulk trash day. And we're just going to let them be taken, right? Things that we've decided we don't want anymore, we don't need them anymore. So we put them out there, and Hannah calls me up to the kitchen where we see the front lawn, and she, she shows me that people have come, they've driven up to our, our curb, and they've gone out looking into our trash bags. I've never seen that before. So I'm like, okay. And then they take it a step further. They then take those trash bags and put them in their car. I'm like, what's happening here? And they go ahead, they take all the trash bags and drive off. I know for a fact one of those bags was just straight trash, like leftover food. Like there's no redeeming qualities or items in that bag, but I'm thankful they took them. Here's what happened, though. I never in any moment in time, as I was watching this process, felt compelled to run out my front door and plead with them to put my stuff back. Why? Because in my mind, it was already gone. And whether it was going to be the trash man or a stranger, to me, I was ready for that to be taken away. And that's what I think Paul is teaching here when he says this, this concept, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish, literally trash. In his mind, he's not saying that he's lost everything. He's saying, I'm ready though. If God so decided, if he needed to prune me of some things in my life, it's gone. I've counted it as loss. I'm ready. Now, the reality here, this lesson that Paul is teaching I'm pretty confident he learned it from someone else named Jesus because look how he taught the pathway of following him in Matthew 16. Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life willingly for my sake will find it. 
So you see Jesus here teaching the same principle. Paul's just kind of getting a little, a little bit more of the details of it. But Jesus taught us, if you want to be a follower of mine, it's going to take you dying to yourself. Giving up your life. Don't fight to save it. You'll lose it. Surrender it and you'll actually find it. Pastor Scott taught this in Mark 8 just a couple months ago. Jesus taught the same thing in the Gospels, right? We talk about Burger King, have it your way, you rule. Love the commercial, good cheeseburgers, terrible theology. And every single day we have to re-surrender our life and the things we have and say, ultimately, Lord, they're yours. You rule, you reign, not us. How does a person do that? I think the way you do that is by seeing Jesus as Paul did. How did he describe him in this passage? Surpassing worth. Paul saw everything as loss for the surpassing worth of Jesus. In his light, he saw everything correctly to move it from gain into the lost column. If I had to give you, like, in another words of, like, how this played out in Paul's life, his mentality that he lived with, I would say it this way. Paul would say, if I have everything but Jesus, I have nothing. But if I have nothing but Jesus, I actually have everything I need. That's how it played out in his life. You give me everything, but you take away Jesus, I lose. Jesus would ask the question, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Nothing. And yet Paul's sitting here thinking, but if you take everything I have and everything I cherish, you can't take Jesus. And he's everything to me. Like Paul's so frustrating. He was literally untouchable. This is where we see pain and pleasure be combated because you couldn't cause him enough pain to jump ship on Jesus and you couldn't allure him away from Jesus and promise him something better. He was ready to stay firm in whatever suffering or pain he was going to endure, and he was going to be able to say no to any lesser pleasure that came his way because he knew what he had behind him. He knew what he could never lose, which was Jesus. That's what made him untouchable. And the reason why we have to move the things that we consider gain into the lost column is because these things that we love and cherish, the good things that God has given us, make us most susceptible to pain and pleasure. Think about it. They're the things that we'll look to most often and we'll look to them to satisfy us when they actually can't. They were never intended to. We'll look to get pleasure from them or if pain came into our life and harmed them, took them away, we're in a bad place. That's right to our heart. And the only way to combat that is to put them in their right place. Now, you might hear this and think, won't that mean you're gonna be a terrible person? Like if you have your family in the gang column and now you're like considering them as lost or as Paul says, rubbish, they're going to make you a better husband. It doesn't sound like it does, but the truth is, yes. Why? Because a life surrendered to Jesus is the best life possible. And you will become the best version of these things as you give them to him. Why is that? Because the way of Jesus demands it, calls you to a higher standard, calls husbands to die to themselves, calls children to obey their parents. Amen, parents? Right? Calls you employees to work not for your boss but for the Lord. Like the standards that Jesus calls us to when we've actually surrendered fully to him help us appreciate and serve and steward these things correctly. Better than had we actually focused on them alone. So it's not that it makes you worse. It actually puts them in their proper place and it works best. And don't hear me and think that I've mastered this. I love this passage. I believe this deeply but I'm really wimpy. So like I read Philippians 3, 7, and 8, and I got to pray through it like, Lord, 
I want this to be true about me. I want this heart. I want to live with this mentality that Paul has. But man, I don't want to go through a lot of loss. I got a lot of stuff in my gain column here that I haven't moved over the loss yet. And I'm, I, I'm scared to do that, Lord. And here's the, re- here's the reality that we just have to believe and know that in the moment that if God so decided to take those things that we consider precious and dear to us, that he will give us the grace in that time. To know that they're not the linchpin of our life, but Jesus is. And it may be painful, it may be hard and sorrowful, but ultimately we will make it through because of him. Now, all this goes back to seeing him rightly, right? Surpassing worth. I think a parable, a went sentence parable that Jesus used actually is kind of like a um, another way of teaching this passage in Matthew 13, 44, I believe Philippians 3, 7, and 8 is found right here. Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. That parable summarizes Philippians 3. It teaches us the lesson of when you come upon something, you realize the value of, of what it is, you're willing to give everything up for it because it's worth it. I recently started to, to petition a common phrase that we say in church circles. It's not a bad phrase. You've probably heard it before that Jesus is enough. It's a good phrase, and sometimes in our life, it's the only appropriate thing that we can muster up and say. I just think that we can't always stay there because I don't think it's actually an accurate statement. And here's why I think that. I just can't imagine us, right now, you and me, we follow Jesus, love Jesus, we get to heaven one day, we're sitting there in his presence, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. And I just don't imagine anyone being there with their arms crossed, looking around, thinking, this is enough. I'm satisfied. My expectations have been met. I just don't think the Bible teaches that. The Bible tells us that the thing that we're waiting for, that no eye or heart can imagine things God has prepared for us on the other side. That there's no comparison between this life and what glory has for us. Like when I think of Jesus being enough, I think of Thanksgiving. Like when you're asking, are there enough for seconds? You know, and you're kind of scared, tiptoeing around dishes, looking like, can I get a little bit more? We're not going to go up there and ask, is there enough of Jesus? There's not going to be enough of us for all of him. That's the reality of heaven. The phrase is not Jesus is enough. The phrase is Jesus is better. That is what we have to fight to believe every single day of our life, that there's nothing in this world that is better than him. He trumps it all. No matter what comes across in your life, whether opportunity or offer, Jesus is better. The problem is that we often live life thinking this life is all there is. We think that we got to live it up now because we don't get anything else after this life. But for those who know Jesus, this life is not the destination. This life is an airplane ride to the destination. Which means this, your airplane ride might be a little rough. You might get a bad seat. You might sit next to someone who smells. You might hit some turbulence. Like the life that you have that is this ride to the destination could be less than desired. But the promise that we have is that once you land there in the destination and you step off the plane into paradise, you're no longer thinking about the plane. And everything you've been through, everything you put up with, everything you've suffered through, you'll look back and say, this was well worth it. Because he was better. And he always will be. See, I believe Paul lived with that eternal perspective. That no matter what he went through in life, he knew where he was going and who he had. 
And nothing could change those things. No matter what someone offered him, no matter what he lost, he knew he had the ultimate treasure in Jesus. Now, let's just be honest here. This is something that we can all understand. We can amen. We can nod. But it's really hard to feel this. One of my shortcomings in life, I would say, is that I'm an emotionally cold guy. Right? Like my emotional waves are like this right here. Some of you in the room, you're like, I'm writing this every minute. I'm just like, happy, sad, happy, sad. I'm like, mm, you know. And so it's hard for me is oftentimes feeling what the Bible calls me to feel. Right? There's a part of the Christian life that we don't just do the right things. We have to actually feel rightly. And that's hard for me. I read this and I want that. Intellectually, I understand that. But my heart doesn't always want it. So what do we do? What do we do to feel that? And the problem there is that really that's a God thing. In fact, what we know from Scripture, scripture in Ezekiel 36 is that the moment of salvation, something takes place. God comes to us and he takes what he calls a heart of stone. A dead heart, dead to him, dead in sin. And he replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He puts his spirit in us to where we were dead in our sin and dead to him and cut off from him. Now we can know him. Now we can desire the right things and say no to the wrong things. Now we can walk in his ways and have the life he came to give us. That's the moment of salvation for you and me. So for you in the room right now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're like, man, I'm hearing you. God's doing something in my, in my heart right now. I'm tired of trying and running and doing it my own way. Your first step is get the right heart. To respond to Jesus and surrender to him. For others in the room who you would say you're a Christian, you might be like, I get I, under, I have the right heart, but my heart's not beating properly. What do I do then? I think there's a couple of things that we can do. One, we never give up the pursuit. No matter how we feel, no matter how, we don't, how much we don't want to do something, don't want to read, don't want to pray, don't want to get alone with him, don't want to go to church or go to small group, we pursue him no matter what. And the second thing we do is as we do that, we continually remind ourselves of who he is. Another favorite passage of mine is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It's one of the best paragraphs in the Bible talking about Jesus. Pastor Scott used a section of those verses last week as we talked about this King Jesus that came into the world. But there's a couple of phrases in Colossians 1, 16 and 18 that I want to read about Jesus specifically. He says this, All things, everything, were created through him and for him. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent. That word preeminent is really important. It means first in front of, above all. And so what this passage is teaching us, that's true about every single thing in creation, you and I included, is that it's all about Jesus. There is nothing in the created world that wasn't made by, through, and for him. It's all about him. Which means that this is not just a good idea, this isn't just an obedience thing, this is a design issue. The reason why nothing ever satisfies and fulfills and delivers is because it wasn't meant to. You were made for him and him alone. In fact, in the Bible, Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us this, that God has put eternity into man's heart. What does that mean? It means that there's an eternity-sized hole in your heart right now. That nothing in this world can fill other than the eternal son of God. And that's what I think is in us that makes us yearn for more. That's why nothing ever delivers. Why we're always looking for something else after we get what we want. Because there's something in us that can't be satisfied other than by Jesus. And so our options are to turn to the fountain of living waters. Which in John 4, the Bible tells us is Jesus himself. 
or we continue to go to our old cisterns over here, carving and hewing them and hoping that one of them will eventually work, will hold enough water to satisfy us, even though we know they're insufficient and broken. Convinced of this has really dictated most of my life. And now as me and my wife and my family gets ready to plant this church, it's shaping up what is King City. And nine months from now, when we are launched, God willing, and you have the question in your mind, what are they doing over there in King City Church? I'll tell you very clearly what we're doing. Everything we're doing is leading people to pursue Jesus above all things in all places. That's what we're doing. This is the mission. This is what I believe God's called us to. Because I believe this is the secret. This is what changes people. You ask, why is all things in all places on there? Why is the places part there? Because the spiritual DNA that was in our founding pastor that's embedded in this church has been in, deeply embedded in me. And I'm convinced that God doesn't just want to birth a church that is only concerned about our city, but also for our nation and our world. And Las Vegas is a city that has kingdom potential to have an impact all across the globe. And here's what we believe, that whether this is happening, whether we're leading people to pursue Jesus above all things, right here at East 850 East Cactus Avenue, or somewhere in Kansas City, or in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, Whatever is taking place, if that's happening, it's transforming people. And change people, change places. We can lead them to do this. It'll change some things. It'll help them in their combating of pain and pleasure. It will transform the world that we're in. We're about to enter 2024, Hope. Take a moment to think of your workspace, your family, your neighborhood. What would be different about it if in 2024... You decided to say, undeclare it and consider it all as loss for the surpassing worth of Jesus. I'm going to pursue him above everything else in my life. What would change in the places we find ourselves if we did that? Would you pray with me as we close? Eyes closed, head bowed. God, thank you so much that you are the fountain of living water. God, thank you for the grace that you know our frame, that we continually look to other things that can't satisfy or fulfill us, and that you're always here, ready and willing to embrace us back. God, forgive me in the times and days that I've looked to other things and rejected you. God, everyone in the room, help us to have the right desire for you, a burning passion for Jesus above everything else in our life. And may that shape who we are more than anything else. As you're praying there in your seat, we're about to enter into a time of response. We do every week in our services. We're going to sing a couple of songs. And this time is designed specifically for you to respond as God is leading. For the people in this room that don't know Jesus, man, I'm praying that right now he's doing something new that you don't even have words for. But maybe there's a stirring in you and you don't know what to do about that. We're about to have pastors up here in the front. And if you just want to learn more what it means to be a Christian or you want to give your life to him and you want to figure out what that looks like, I want to encourage you, come down here and talk to one of our pastors. They would be thrilled to pray with you, connect you with someone who will sit you down with the Bible and help you process that all. If he's moving right now, don't miss that. But for those in the room that we'd say that are Christians, and maybe after hearing all this, you're feeling a lot of different ways. You're feeling convicted, challenged. Maybe you just need to come down here and you need to pray with the pastor. 
Maybe you're going through some painful times right now and you just need strength and comfort and peace. You know, there's something that's threatening your relationship with Jesus that's pushing you away from him. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe there's something in your life promising to satisfy you that isn't Jesus, that you know is bad for you, that's pulling you away from him. We'd love to pray for you. Maybe you just need to come down here and use these steps and just get along with the Lord. And you just need to pray towards 2024 and the years to come and just declare to him, Lord, you are better. And I want to pursue you above everything else in my life. I want to consider all it loss to the surpassing worth of Jesus. However God leads, we just want to give this space for you to respond in obedience. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand and worship. God, thank you for this space. Thank you again for who you are. God, would you meet with us right now? Would you move us? God, let us not move past what you're doing right now. Show us how we need to respond. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we worship?